tidings of great joy. Good tidings of great joy. Well, what are the good tidings and why should that be great joy for you this morning? We would be naive to suggest that everyone on this morning during this season is filled with great joy. Families are estranged. Relationships are filled with conflict. The cancer center is still open. Divorce lawyers are still filing papers. Chronic illness and disease are still bringing sorrow. And the joy, whatever joy you have today as it relates to circumstances, will dissipate like the vapor, probably before the sun sets. But this joy transcends circumstances because it's found in the child that was born and the son that was given. So this morning, as we see the angel make this announcement to lowly shepherds, we want to consider four reasons this is good news and four reasons this is great joy with four words. Savior, Sovereign, Sign, and Satisfier. Jesus is a Savior, He's a Sovereign, He's a Sign, and He is a Satisfier. Verse 10, The angel of the Lord said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which, to be, which shall be to all people, because, and this is why, reason number one, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior. Now the word Savior means a deliverer, a rescuer, a preserver, someone that brings salvation. But what is salvation? That's something in our current culture of Christianity we need to be very clear about. Even in the Bible, the word is used in a myriad of ways. A person is delivered in battle and they experience what? Salvation. Someone's delivered from a disease. They are saved from a disease. In the Bible, they experience salvation. Even you use this word this way today in our modern language. Your GPS saves you from a traffic jam. The doctor saves the patient, and yes, there are many people trying to save the planet. In that sense, the planet experiences salvation. None of those have anything to do with entering the kingdom of God. But this salvation, this Savior, comes to remove the penalty for which we are all under. And that's the prophecy that was read this morning in Matthew 1.21, when Joseph the angel appeared to him in a dream. He was troubled because Mary was found with child before they had come together. And the angel said, Fear not to take Mary thy wife. That thing which was received in her, conceived in her, is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Three certainties in that text. There's no way she could not have a son. She shall bring forth a son. There is absolutely no way he could be called anything other than Jesus because of the certainty of what he will do. He shall save his possessive personal pronoun, people from their sins. Beloved, you and I need a Savior because we are sinners. And as sinners, apart from grace, we're all under the wrath of God. And that's what needs to be so clear in our culture of Christianity because Christians are confused on why Jesus came. He didn't come to give you a better life. He didn't come to be an example, although He is. He came to remove the wrath that is hovering over all humanity. And the book of Romans so clearly 
points this out in many ways. Consider Romans 3.23 where Paul would write, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To come short means to be devoid of something necessary as it relates to God's glory. The very thing the angel announced that these good tidings would bring glory to God in the highest. What are we devoid of that's necessary as it relates to God's glory? We are devoid of worship, adoration, love, honor, and a treasuring God for which He deserves. Romans 1.25 says, We change the glory of God into a lie, and we worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. We knew God, We know something glorious about God, whether by revelation or, as mentioned this morning, by conscience. All humanity has a revelation to some degree of God. And we take that revelation and we exchange it for something of lesser value, something created. And we worship, we serve, we adore, we honor, we treasure something God created, a reflected glory, rather than the Creator God. For that, We are under wrath. We've all come short. All humanity has come short. But then the news in verse 325. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How can God freely declare you to be right when you are so wrong? How can He declare me to be righteous when I'm so unrighteous? The next verse. And this is why... The babe was first laid in a manger, whom God has set forth. He sent him forth. He set him forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith. What does that mean? Propitiation, the Greek word can be translated in one of two ways. It can mean expiation, which if you remember means the removal of something. Expiation points to the act itself of the sacrifice. Ex means out of, which means something must be removed in order for Jesus to be our Savior and for us to experience salvation. Something must be taken out of the way which was done so by His blood. That's the removal of our guilt. We are really guilty and really culpable for our sin. We're guilty. We're sinners. Jesus was set forth to be an expiatory sacrifice to remove guilt. Now the word propitiation, which could be translated from the same Greek word, which it is here, means for something. So expiation in the sacrifice is for something. It's for appeasing something, which is what the word means, to placate something. Now people object, particularly Christians, object to the reality of God's wrath needing to be placated. But the Bible declares... Propitiation means the the sacrifice of blood was for. It was to satisfy the wrath of God. So God's disposition has turned from wrath to favor. All because of this babe that was laid in a manger. He came from heaven and earth to show us the way, from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. Jesus is a Savior. And so God set Him forth to be a propitiation, to absorb His wrath, to completely absorb 
every drop of wrath owing to sinners to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God and now to declare His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of whom? To those that believe in Jesus Christ and are followers of His. God is just. He's right to justify sinners and let them off the hook. Why? Because their debt was paid fully by Jesus Christ. He is a Savior. Now the question is, if we are to have this great joy and these good tidings are to be for us, we ask ourselves, do you trust in Jesus Christ? Are you a follower of His? This is for all people who trust in Jesus and follow Him. Jesus delivered us from the penalty of sin. He's delivering us from the power of sin. And He will one day deliver us from the presence of sin. Every day we prove we still need this babe in a manger. We still need Him because of the sins that so easily manifest themselves in our lives. But He came died, sent us the Spirit that we could grow in overcoming the power of sin. And what is that power? It's the power of joy, isn't it? Listen to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 when he speaks about the penalty being removed. In verse 10, he would say, We are waiting for His Son Jesus from heaven, who was raised again, who delivered us from the wrath to come. There's the penalty. We're waiting... For Him from heaven, because He's going to take us there to remove the presence of sin. But then in verse 9, we find He removes the power of sin. Because the church there had turned from idols to God to serve the living and the true God. Are you turning from idols? Not do you have any. We know the reality there. We all do. Not do you have any sin that you're struggling with. The question is, are you turning from idols to God, waiting for His Son because He delivered, the Son delivers from the wrath to come? So if this is to be good news of great joy, then Jesus is the one you trust in. Jesus is the one you look to to help you still today with a burst of lust that happened this past week, with still the the frustration and anger over people shopping the same day you decided to shop. What are they doing anyway? Over the deep disappointment, maybe, that you didn't get what you wanted on this day. All those demonstrate we still need a Savior to help us, not only with the penalty, not only to remove the presence one day in heaven, but right now we need Him because sin easily at times gains rule and control over us. So He's a Savior. And the good news is for all those that trust Him, fight sin, and look for Him one day to return, will He remove the presence of sin forever and will be, not with a babe, but with King Jesus forever. Which brings us to the second point. He's a sovereign. He's a king. For unto you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Why does the angel want to point out he's the Lord? Because this babe in a manger 
is a king. He's a monarch. He's a sovereign. Point to the fact that he was born in the city of David. Now, there's two significant things about the fact that he was born in the city of David. There may be more. I'll give you two. One is that Mary and Joseph were not yet in the city of David until, verse 1, Caesar Augustus made a decree to tax the whole world. They're living in Nazareth. The prophecy of Micah 5.2 says they must be in Bethlehem. If they don't get to Bethlehem, the whole Bible is not true. If one prophecy fails, for which God said will happen, the entire book is no good. So what happens? Well, it just so happens, for whatever reason, right? Caesar Augustus declared that the whole world would be taxed. And what he did, which was really very brilliant, you know, rather than send the bureaucrats and the accountants all to those rural areas to try to find all these people, they take this census, they want to know what your name is, what your income is, and what your property, how much property, so they can tax you. They require everybody to come into the cities. It'd be much easier and less costly for the Roman Empire to do it that way. And it just so happens that's exactly what Mary, where Mary and Joseph must be. When I say must be, I mean they must be in Bethlehem. You see, the decree of Caesar is the decree of God that he made before the world ever began. And Micah 5, 2 proves that. They were as sure to be in Bethlehem as the prophecy was sure to get them there. A decree is simply an order made by legal authority. The order was all to be taxed. You have to go to your city of nativity, for which Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem. He's of the tribe of David, the lineage of David. The legal authority is Caesar. But God had decreed that Caesar would make that decree. And His providence carried it out. Right? Daniel 2.21 God changes the times and the seasons and He removes kings and set them up and He set up Caesar Augustus, if we just believe that text. Daniel 4, 25. Nebuchadnezzar would be made to eat grass like an ox and men would drive him from society until he would learn what? The Most High is ruling in the kingdom of men and He gives it to whomsoever He wills. And He gave it to Caesar Augustus. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and as rivers of water, he turns it, the heart of the king, whithersoever he pleases. He set him up, he gave him the kingdom of men, and he turned his heart to make a decree because Mary and Joseph must go to Bethlehem. God is a sovereign. And Jesus is a sovereign because he is God. Then secondly, the city of David, because the prophecy says, Out of Bethlehem Ephratah shall he come forth unto me, that is to be what? Ruler, king in Israel and over all the earth. Jesus was born in the city of David partly because David was a king. And Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, which you heard read this morning, said what? Of the increase of his government and peace, there should be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish 
with justice and judgment henceforth even forever. So he comes out of the city of David because now, beloved, he is sitting on the throne of David, which means he is a king. Is that good news to you of great joy? Well, that depends. Is he your sovereign? Is he your Lord? Is he your king? In two ways. Do you submit to his providence over your life? How could that be great joy when maybe you're in great pain this morning? Great chronic illness, great distress, great trouble, trouble on every side. How can that really be great joy when there's so much difficulty and hardships in this world? Well, the first thing to remember is that God is not ruling over your life to make it easy, comfortable, convenient, prosperous, or advance you. He's ruling over it for your holiness. The decree of God working through the decree of Caesar did not remove the fact that Mary, great with child, had to travel 70 miles from the north to the south to get to Bethlehem. Now, on a normal day, with normal health, it takes about a day to walk 20 miles. We can assume she was on a donkey. I would assume she rode some kind of animal. How long would that take? And great with child means she's in the ninth month. She's ready to go. And God did not spare her. The pain, the difficulty of a 70 mile journey. And for what? Just to be taxed? And she goes. And beloved, God's providence is not going to spare you one pain, one sorrow, one hardship that will work for your holiness. Because this babe came to be your sovereign king and to rule over you like a monarch in order to make you holy. And the Bible declares that over and over. Romans 8, 28, 29, 1 Peter 1, 6, 7, and James 1, 2, where James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into all kinds of trouble. Temptation, there's trial. And a trial just means things are not going as you planned it. Things are not going as you want it. In fact, things are hard, troubling, distressing, and difficult. Count it joy. Think of it. Esteem it as joy. Why? Knowing this, the trying of your faith is working patience. First reason to count it joy, King Jesus is over your faith doing something. Your trouble just doesn't work toward patience unless somebody's doing the work, and that's Jesus Christ. He's working in everything in your life. He purchased you. He bought you to be your sovereign, to rule over you for your holiness. That means He's taking everything in your life to serve that purpose of making you holy. You are holy in one sense. You've been declared right. That'll never change. And then He's working out that holiness in your life to shape you, to mold you, to be more like what you are already in position. And what is that? You're right. You're holy in the law book of heaven. Count it joy. Jesus is ruling over every trial. The trying of your faith is working patience. The second reason you should count it joy. If you are still enduring after the trial you have the deep assurance you're really a Christian. Faith endures. Faith stays with God in the fire. Faith keeps going 
albeit through the struggle, through sin, through repentance, through confession. Faith is resilient. It cannot die. So if you're enduring, which is the word patience means, if you're still enduring in and after the trial, you're a Christian in reality. That's good news. You can count that joy. That means Christ is sustaining your faith. He's keeping your faith, which is why you woke up as a Christian this morning. Notwithstanding the distress, the difficulty, the deep sorrow, the deep pain that you may or will go through. If you wake up a Christian, King Jesus is keeping you. Count that joy. He will not let you go. Third reason. The trying of your faith is working patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. Perfect means completeness, to be brought to its end, to be accomplished, in some way complete. Now what is the standard that God uses to complete you, to bring you to an end, to bring you to maturity, which is another thing the word means. What is His standard? It's Jesus Christ. So what is the trial that you're counting all joy, the difficulty, the pain, the sorrow that's working patience and endurance is bringing about a perfection, a maturity, an end, and what is that? Christ-likeness. That's why Jesus is ruling over everything in your life. And He will stop at nothing to get you there, and He will stop at nothing to show you the glory of God in the highest, which may mean a 70-mile trip, nine months in pregnancy, or a sorrow or a trouble that's awaiting you in 2023 that you know nothing about, but Jesus knows everything about. And His aim is to draw you into His love. Because when you're like Christ, what's the upshot? What's his relationship with the Father? But one of love and peace and joy. So if Jesus is your sovereign and Lord, then we submit to his providence. Not by having no sin, but by staying with him in the trouble. Trusting, hanging on to him in every trial that he has appointed for your life. Then He's your sovereign. And then secondly, when you submit to His Word. If He's a Lord and a King, then He has authority. And His authority is He commands us and we yield. Again, not with perfection, not without repentance and and confession, but we're on a pathway of obedience. For this to be good tidings of great joy, this joy is on the pathway of being under the sovereign whose name is Jesus. And the Bible declares it over and over. Matthew 17, 5, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God told Peter, James, and John what? This is my beloved son. Hear him, which means listen and obey what he says. That's God's word to us, isn't it? Acts 5, 32, he has given the Holy Ghost to all them that obey him. That is Jesus, who is God. Romans 1, 5, Paul was made... An apostle, by grace and apostleship, he was given grace for apostleship. Why? For the obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Obedience. 
and then Hebrews 5, 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. This babe was perfected in all his sufferings. He was made complete, in other words, by the things that he suffered. And becoming the author of eternal salvation to all those that obey him. For this to be good tidings of great joy. You trust him and you're walking on the pathway of doing whatever King Jesus commands in his word. That's the only assurance we have. Beloved, obedience is not the cause but the result. It's not the root but it's the fruit. And if there's no fruit of obedience hanging on the tree, what does that suggest about the root? The tree is not good. But when there's some fruit hanging on the tree, may not be a full tree of fruit, but there's some level of fruit on the tree called obedience, the root is attached to the vine who is Jesus Christ. Is He your sovereign? If He is, then you're fighting the good fight of faith on the pathway of submission to His providence by staying with Him. Not checking out on God because He didn't keep something from happening in your life or He brought something painful into your life because He's working for your holiness and being submissive to what He says. As challenging as that is, as difficult as it is, Our Savior, our Sovereign, brings grace to us that we may walk in the pathway of obedience to the glory of His name in the highest. Number three, a sign. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a feed trough. A sign. Now, a sign can be one of three things in the Bible. A sign can be a sign of something that's about to happen. It could be like an omen, something bad that's going to happen. Sometimes it's used that way in the Bible. A sign can be a miracle that authenticates the messenger of God, as in Jesus' case. He did miracles and signs proving what? He is the Messiah. And prophets did signs proving the message was for God. And then thirdly, a sign can simply be something that distinguishes one person or one thing from another. And that's the way it's used here. Now, if the Lowly shepherds are going to find this babe in Bethlehem. How are they going to identify him? Well, this is the sign. You'll find him in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. But the first part of the sign is not much of a sign if it's by itself, is it? Right? That's like your son or daughter telling you after the birth of your grandson or granddaughter, Dad, you'll find your grandson swaddled in the hospital. Okay, I'm going to the nursery, mother, mother and baby room, there's a big window. And that narrows it down to about every baby in the hospital. They're all swaddled. This was an ancient practice among people of ancient times where they all swaddled their babies. That, that's not the sign. You should find the baby swaddled, lying, participle, in a feed trough. That's the sign. How many babies did you suppose were laid in a feed trough? Now, it is possible that some extraordinary circumstances that some mother at the birth of their child had to lay their baby in a feed trough. That's not out of the ordinary. What's extraordinary about this is you don't put a king in a feed trough. You just don't do it. 
There are no circumstances ever where you put an eternal, sovereign king in a stable in a feed trough. And why did they do it? Well, the text says in verse 7, She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. But we know that's only the human reason. Right? I mean, surely God could have created a little vacancy in that inn. You know, just delay someone's schedule. <laughs> Get a phone call. And they have to call the inn and say, look, I've got to cancel my reservation. Can't make it. And there's a room. Or He could have created a diversion where somebody has to go home early. You know, somebody's on a business trip and something's happening at home. I've got to go. I've got to check out early. There's a room. Or He could have created a whole other wing on the side of the inn. Or He could have created a whole new hotel or a palace. No, on the human level, of course, there was no room for, the, for him in the end. But on the divine level, the king chose to lie in a manger. You never choose where you lie your head as an infant. Somebody does that for you. But this king, he decided by the plan of God that he would be laid in a stable in a feed trough. Now, how is that good tidings of great joy for us today? Suppose that these lowly shepherds, and that was a lowly occupation. I mean, it was like being, working for the sanitation department. Very lowly. Suppose they had been told, go to the palace. He's laid in a golden crib and there's security guards all around. You'll have to have this pass to get through. You've got to have security clearance to get through the gate. You know what they probably would have concluded? Whatever the Savior is, it's not for me. It's not for me. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 9 why Jesus was laid in the manger when he said these words. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, how that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might be made rich. Now here's the question When was Jesus ever rich? I mean, read the Bible. There is not a millisecond of his life that he was ever rich. But he was rich before he came to earth, wasn't he? He was rich in deity. He was rich in glory. Now when he became poor and was laid in that manger, he didn't set aside the wealth of his divinity. He veiled it in human form. As you just sang. Veiled incarnate deity. He didn't lay it aside. He veiled himself in humanity. He gave up the privilege and right of not being a mere creature. And he became a creature, a poor creature, a man, for your sakes. That you, through his poverty, might be rich in his glory, in his salvation, and all that he is for you. All that Jesus is for you. That is good news. Do you ever feel insignificant? Well, here's the news. We are. I mean, God gets these two insignificant people. He moves the political structure of the day to get two insignificant, no-name people where He wanted them. And He's doing the same for you.
See, the message is not to think of ourselves more highly than we really are. We are insignificant. But in Christ, we've been made rich by His love and His mercy. And so this sign is good news of great joy if you feel to be lowly and insignificant like the shepherds. He came to be low in circumstances for you that you might be rich in Him. That is good news for us today. This sign, furthermore, is pointing as a reminder that we are to deny ourselves on the pathway with Jesus in our lives. You remember in Luke 9 when some man enthusiastically cried out and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus reminded him of his poverty, of his low condition. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Now what is Jesus saying? Look, if you want to follow me, don't own a house, don't have possessions, and you can follow me. That's not what he's saying. Could Jesus have provided a house? A big one? Yes. He denied himself. So the message he was sending is, you must take up your cross, deny yourself to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This sign of His lowliness from His birth to His crucifixion is a sign for us that the pathway with Jesus of good news and great joy is the pathway of self-denial. In fact, He says, it's the only way you can follow Me. We must deny ourselves, of course, of unlawful things that we should not have, and we need to be ready to deny ourselves of good things that we can have. Why? Because a call to love is what? A call to let goods and kindred go for other people. If you can't deny yourself, you won't let anything go. So the sign of His lowliness for us, He was put in that manger for us, that we through His poverty might be made rich, and to remind us. He didn't deviate from the pathway to Calvary by starting in a palace and then going to poverty. He was... Low all the way through. And we join Him on the pathway to Calvary and we join Him in self-denial. How is that great joy? Because Jesus says, Where I am, there shall my servant be also. And to be with Jesus is what? Great joy. Good tidings of great joy. And then lastly, He's a satisfier. And then we find in verse... 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, which means supremely to the highest degree, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now some translations say peace and uh, God is pleased with uh, men or something to that effect, but I, I prefer the KJV here because I think it more directly states what God intends. And so for God to be glorified, it means glory is majesty, uh, excellence, splendor, opinion, esteem for something. When you esteem something, you calculate its value. Now in one sense, of course, in, in the reality, uh, God is, is never glorified in the highest, in degrees, right? He's just glorious. 
we could never increase His glory. Jesus came to vindicate the glory of His name by dying for sinners and to bring salvation in a way that's going to bring glory to God, that's going to esteem His worth, although we cannot add to His worth. There's nothing we can do to add one iota to the value and the worth and the esteem of God. He's infinitely glorious. So the question is, how do we glorify God in the highest, which suggests it can be in degrees, we can increase in that or decrease in that. And the answer was the second part of the phrase. By having peace and goodwill on earth. This is indeed good news of great joy. Now what does that mean? Peace can also mean contentment. When you're at peace, you're, you're content. And goodwill means delight, pleasure, or to be satisfied. Now, if we put those two together, like the old catechism that says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, or by enjoying Him forever. In other words, the way God is glorified is through enjoying Him forever. That's how He gets glory out of us. So how should we read this? God is glorified in higher degrees when we are content, have pleasure have delight on our being satisfied in that glory. That ought to be really great news of great joy. For many reasons, let me give you one. What that means then is if I seek to obey the command of God to glorify Him in everything, to seek His glory, to seek His kingdom, to follow hard after God, what am I pursuing but my own pleasure my own delight, and my own satisfaction in God. Do you see that? That ought to be good news of great joy, because this joy is forever. Jesus says, The joy I give to you, no man taketh from you. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy would be full. So the kind of peace, the kind of pleasure, the kind of delight, and the kind of satisfaction God brings in His glory lasts forever. And that's what Jesus came to purchase on your behalf. Now here's the upshot then. Here's the question. Is this good news of great joy? Is He your satisfier? You really want to answer that. Is Jesus the satisfier of my soul? Does He give me pleasure spiritually in Him? Is He my delight? Then it's good news for you of great joy. And so what that means then for the new year, you and I ought to so seek the glory of God with everything we have. And in so doing, what are you pursuing? But your own pleasure and satisfaction in Him. To seek any other thing is spiritual suicide and death. Is it not? And all the people in this world who seem to be having so much pleasure outside of Christ, you get it, don't you? You're not duped. I hope you're not fooled by this. Are you deceived by this? Whatever pleasure they have is for a season and then it's gone forever. And so we understand through Christ 
This babe in a manger that came to give us these good tidings of great joy. That when God is glorified, He's not a killjoy. He's not removing pleasure. He's actually bringing it. And therefore, will you join me in 2023 at so seeking God's glory that we're seeking to be so satisfied, so overjoyed, so full of pleasure, so full of delight that God is being glorified in the highest when we're having peace, not in our circumstances. As long as believer and unbeliever live on the same planet, that'll never happen. But peace in your soul by being content with all that God is, with all that God says He is on our behalf through the babe in a manger. What would that look like? More prayer. In 2023, more Bible, more worship, more serving, more loving. It means all the things that God tells us in His Word as to what it means to bring Him glory. He's not the beneficiary of getting glory. We are the beneficiaries. God is the benefactor. And He's doing it all by an amazing, outrageous, initiative act of grace by sending His Son to die on behalf of rebel sinners who had no joy, no delight, no pleasure, and would never be satisfied with God unless He took the initiative to draw you in. That is good tidings of great joy. Is He your Savior? Is He your Sovereign? Is He assigned to you? Through His humility, we're on the same pathway. And is He your satisfier? Wouldn't it be a great day to follow Jesus today? On a day. I, I, I get it. I, I know Christmas has pagan origins. We get that. Right? I, I know He wasn't born on this day, really. We get that. But all week I've heard songs on secular radio about Jesus being born. There have even been television shows about His birth. Are you glad for that? All over the place. Wouldn't it be something on this day, the very day that everybody's thinking about it, you become a follower of Jesus Christ because you recognize your need for Jesus. Do you need Him? You need Him as a Savior. As a sovereign, he's your sign because he's the satisfier. Let's pray. Father, make all this a reality in our hearts and minds. We know that apart from you, that none of this would be a reality. None of this would be true for us had Jesus not come and decided to lay his own head as the sovereign of the universe, allowed to be held and carried by human flesh, sinful men and women, that he may humble himself unto death, even the death of the cross. And now, Lord, you are a triumphant, ruling, reigning Savior on our behalf. And one day, Lord, there will be joy to the world in fullness when you appear and make yourself known as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And every knee will drop to the ground, some in adoration, some in great fear and trembling, but all knees will drop and all mouths will confess that you are God, you are 
glorious and that you are exactly who you said you were in your life and through Scripture. You will be vindicated. Lord, I pray that our knees would drop today and bow in adoration under your supremacy and live for your glory by seeking your glory and bless us when we do, Lord, in all the ways you have given in Scripture that we would experience more of the joy and the pleasure and the contentment that is for us in Christ and help us to see it spiritually and to experience it. We pray all this in your blessed name. We pray it. Amen.